I don't plan on doing gymnastics or anything. It just, there's no telling. So, uh, well, good morning, everyone. I really appreciate Todd's message last week. Uh, you know, it kind of sent me down a road thinking a lot about the things I struggle with. You know, I, I oftentimes, some of you may or may not know, oftentimes struggle with depression, times of depression, and um, with deep anxiety. Uh, and just in general, how the uh, all-consuming demands of this world can come upon you and how overwhelming they can be. And um, I think uh, this is exasperated uh, by the implications of the gospel that sometimes are sold in our particular world unwittingly by our modern evangelical tradition. Um, The church in North America has a real tendency to kind of baptize the status quo of this world and call it good, Uh, of hallowing the ordinary things in this life and giving them some kind of eternal weight. After accepting the gospel, we are supposedly supposed to more fully give ourselves to all the tasks and the ways of relating in this life and in this world and in this age than even non-believers, right? That's part of what our salvation is, it seems. Uh, I guess because God's Spirit's in us. I don't know how the two connect, but somehow that's sometimes how it comes out, you know? Um... We're to labor endlessly, right? All the things you got to do, right? You got to go to college. The one that God wills, right? (laughs) You got to have the career that God wills for you. Uh, You got to have the perfect husband or wife that God wills for you. Uh, You got to have the 2.5 wonderful children who are seemingly unaffected by the fall because of your amazing parenting, which God wills for you, right? And of course, we got to have the home, the car, the vacations, and the retirement package that God wills for us. Got to make sure you pick the right one. You know, you wouldn't want to find yourself somehow outside of God's will in these things. Uh, after all, it is said, we're God's stewards for these things in the world, right? We're to choose the particular church that God wills for us. We're to serve in the ministries that God wills for us and participate in the particular community activities that God wills for us. It's, it's laborious, isn't it? Of course, also vital to a Christian who, whose body is the temple of God is being a pillar of health, right? So we got to exercise several times a week. We got to maintain the perfect, all-natural, certified, organic, gluten-free, GMO-free diet God wills for us, right? Of course, everyone knows that. Uh, also, uh, it's important to use the right oils. You know, we Christians are all about being anointed. Uh, we got to take the right supplements and medications. We got to have the right doctors, you know. You'd hate to have the wrong one, right? <laughs> we as Christians, so this story goes, are supposed to fully give ourselves to all the tasks and ways of relating in this life, in this world, in this age. So the story can sound, and I'm I'm obviously satirizing it a little bit, but the story kind of sounds like this. A Christian progresses in this world far better than the non-Christian. Fortunately, we're in a place that affords that opinion. Uh, Christianity is the key that unlocks all this world has to offer. And as a Christian, we're empowered to make full use of this world, right? We're the best at marriage because we're the people who focus on the family, right? 
and we so vigilantly labor in these things. You feel the burden even as I go through them? I'm like, oh man, failure at every turn for me. And we need to continually surpass how we once were, right? Either as non-believers or even earlier as Christians. Because supposedly, that's what sanctification is. Our progressing in this world. And often our hopes are that these things will be the difference that deliver us one step closer to joy in this life. Oh, wait. I need some kind of a Christian voice, a Christian verse that'll promote this, fo- this form of a pursuit of prosperity here. Oh, I know, Jeremiah 29, 11. Here it is. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you seemingly in this life uh, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. And we kind of subtly add in, now. <laughs> well, I got to confess I was sold this good news. And you know, it's so pervasive that it continues to affect me. I've been following the Lord for a little over 20 years. And I'll tell you, these pursuits have made me weary and exhausted. Do you ever feel this way? You guys do. Y'all got way too many decisions that your life hinges upon in this life, right? Do you feel the burden of progress? Of the successful mastery of this life? What if? What if there's a kingdom reality that reorients the way we think? about the priorities that this world would want to put upon us. Boy, the prospect of that sounds nice, doesn't it? Here's the question for the day. What is a kingdom orientation that is to inform our concerns, our decisions, and life paths in the everyday activities? You interested in that question? I am. It's what set me down a course to want to do this today is personal need, personal deficiency, uh, a feeling of a burden that as I read the vision that Scripture gives, I realize I shouldn't feel in the way that I do. I'm convinced that a kingdom perspective is what separates the enslaved followers of this world from the freed followers of Christ. I'm also convinced that there are many of us, myself included, who continually struggle with the deceit of this world, often in the form of Christian religion, and are thereby hindered in experiencing the peace, the wholeness, the shalom that is offered to us right now in Christ, regardless of our worldly situation. And because God's kingdom orientation is a gift of His Spirit, let's pray to Him right now and ask Him to renew our minds for understanding. Father, thank You for Your patience, Your kindness, and Your tolerance 
to lead you to repentance. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that we've enacted through him and the gift of your spirit to lead and to guide and to enlighten us to the great things of your word, to the liberty that you offer us. Lord, open our hearts to your word this morning and let us experience that liberty afresh again. For your name's sake, amen. Well, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it's been a long week, sorry. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he addresses how to go about thinking about these everyday things of this world, particularly marriage from a kingdom perspective. The people of Corinth want to know the all-important questions, right? Of which state of existence in this world is the one that God wants for them? Is it slavery or is it freedom, right? Is it circumcision or uncircumcision? These all-important questions. Is it marriage or celibacy? You know, the things that are really important. And we're so consumed about these types of states of being in the world, aren't we? Do you guys struggle over these questions, one or the other? I'll go through some, and you can nod if one applies. As if these issues somehow define us or have some kind of eternal significance in our lives. Here, let me give you some. Ready? Either to marry or to remain single. This girl or guy or that girl or guy. Children, how many or none at all? Holistic medication, modern meds. Public school, private, homeschool, which one? This or that college, no college? Am I hitting anywhere close? This job, that job, which one does God want for me? Stay-at-home parent, two-income parents, retirement, keep working, buy this, don't buy this, more sex, less sex, this vacation, that vacation, this house, that house, this car, that car, this sport, that sport. It's, it's wearisome, isn't it? All these important questions. And on and on ad nauseum. Which does the Lord will for me? We ask with anxiety in Corinthian-like fashion, to be honest. In fact, today in our world, there's such an elevated concern in the community of God that copious amount of resources continue to fly off the press in alarming rates on dating, marriage, finances, parenting, sex, diet, and the like. You know what's striking, though, and what has been striking to me almost no reflection whatsoever has been given concerning these everyday ordinary things of existence in this world and a lot of the current end time situation the kingdom situation that we have been in since Jesus first came no one addresses that well in 1st Corinthians Paul addresses speaks to slavery and circumcision and marriage but he chooses these hot topics of the day, not because of how important they are, because they're really not, but to undergird the force of his practical instruction. He's giving practical instruction of how to come up to these questions with theological reasoning, right? See, we kind of bypass that. So what we, we'll say is something like this, ready? 
You know, I've been praying to the Lord for a long time about fill in the blank. And I finally feel like he said I should do this. Woo. I'll just tell you right now, that's a real scary proposition. And it's hard to be certain that's the Lord telling you anything there. It might be you baptizing your own inclinations, preferences, or the desires of your flesh. For me, it is sometimes, I'll tell you that. Paul's intention here and what we're going to look at is to give us, to give the Corinthians, a kingdom perspective that will govern and guide all of their concerns in this world. See, that's what you need, a maxim, right? Something that you could look at that would guide how you thought about all of those decisions. Not either this or that. Lord, give me the wisdom to know. You know, a truck or an SUV, it's so weighty, Lord. I'm sure there's a will you have for me in this. Trust me, there's not. He could care less. So what do slavery, circumcision, and marriage have to do with one another? They illustrate that there is no earthly status that's incompatible with the Christian calling by God. None of these. Nor anything I listed above, which college, don't worry guys, it's not near the, the question you think it is. Or whether at all to go. Parents, not a big question. And yet we're consumed by them. And they have no spiritual or eternal significance whatsoever. One condition, Paul will argue, is not bad and the other one good. One's not preferred and the other one less preferred. No condition presents an obstacle to living the Christian life. Since a Christian is now defined by God's call and nothing else. What matters is keeping the commandments of God regardless of one's situation. That's all that matters. You hear me? Only thing that matters. Anthony Thistleton said it this way. He's one of my favorite writers. A Christian does not have to seek the right situation in order to enjoy Christian freedom or to serve God's call effectively. And that is absolutely right. I love it when Yvonne's shaking her head. I know I'm on the right track. These things I listed above that we want to pray for all the time, they're of no consequence to God. I'm going to tell you that. And that might feel disconcerting to you for now, but as we go through our text, I think you might come to the fact that they really can't be. <laughs> and now for the why. They are of no consequence to God. The why that is informed by the end time reality, the kingdom reality, that allows Paul to say that these are of no consequence. That's our context. That's the context for our our scripture this morning, so now we're going to look at the text a little bit. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31, it's one sentence long. So you can kind of go, whew, thank goodness, that, that intro made me think we might be in for a long one, just one verse. That's it. Well, three verses, one sentence. This one sentence is the maxim that Paul refers to in verse 25, which some people say is Paul's opinion, because he says, I say, this is not a command from the Lord. That's not actually what he's saying. An opinion is a really bad translation of that. It's a maxim, an axiom. He's going to give you an axiom for considering these things because these things, there can't be a command to the Lord because one's not good and the other one bad. One's not preferred and the other one less preferred. 
So what do you need when that's the case? Could you possibly have a command from the Lord if we're talking about the everyday things of life, that there's not either this or that? No, you'll have to have an axiom. You'll have to have something that helps you to understand that question in a whole new light. And that's what Paul is going to offer here. So he's not saying, what I say doesn't really have bearing on you. I'm just going to give you my opinion. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, these things don't have an either-or answer. So I'm going to give you the axiom that you're going to need in order to approach these everyday life questions in a way that's godly. Let me read these, these verses real quick, and you might... They might strike you as, oh yeah, those are some strange ones. I've read through that real quick and thought to hurry on because hard stuff to grasp. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Crystal clear, right? <laughs> You're supposed to laugh a little bit. Let me go through the structural, structural rationale or, or, or how this sentence is supposed to play out. Ready? The interjection. So he's talking about celibacy and then he interjects with the maxim. Ready? But this I say, brethren. He's changed everything right then. He wants, he wants to come away from that and talk about something above it, really, as it were. The basic premise, the time is compressed, or the time is shortened, or the time is limited. That's the premise. And then the purpose or the result of that premise, so that for now on, have wives as though you do not, mourn or rejoice as though you do not, Buy as though you don't possess. Uh, use the world, but not full use of it. And the reason for this world in its present form is passing away. So I'm going to take each one of these and we're going to look at them because things like uh, the time has been shortened, that's some weird stuff that's uh, misinterpreted an awful lot. And it's really hard. And I see why. In the Greek, that's a really hard thing to convey in the English language. You would really need some context. Um, but I'm going to start with the interjection because it's important. Brethren, in its particular case, is evocative. So uh, he's addressing them. So, you know, he's talking to them in his letter, and then all of a sudden he wants to address them, which, which is shifting things. He wants them to set this aside and listen to what he's about to say. And, he's, and, and, and because he's given a word, he's broadening the perspective, and now he's giving a word, this axiom for the whole community, that applies well beyond marriage and celibacy. And that's why he's interrupting his argument right now. And he says, this, I say, this, this is, is the idea that um, he is coming away from the discussion to talk about something broader. And that's why I'm not going to talk a lot about marriage and celibacy today. I'm going to take the liberty, because this is how Paul is doing this, to use it in the way he's intending to use it now, as something much broader that's much more axiomatic to the way that we engage life, okay? So that's why I'm not going verse by verse through all of chapter 7. But I wanted you to know that I am staying within context and giving the interpretation in the context that it's given. In order that we can consider what a, a kingdom perspective is that should guide these everyday decisions that we make. So now to the basic premise, which is the real key for understanding this. The time is shortened. 
That's the key to, the, to this whole sentence, is that the time has been shortened. Time, usually we hear time, and what do we think about, right? Is Jason going to be done in 40 minutes, or is it going to be 55, right? The, the quantity, the length of time is the thing that we think about when they say time, but that's not what Paul's referring to at all. He's referring to the character of the time. How Christians should look at the time that is left. Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension into the place of power as Lord over heaven and earth, the coming of the Spirit, they've changed how Christians should look at the time that is left. Paul understands the compressing of time, the shortening of time, to mean that the future outcome of the world has become crystal clear. That's what he means by it. Would have been hard to got that out of the time is shortened, huh? I'm going to, Gordon Fee is another one of my favorites. And he said it again, and it, it bears repeating because we really need to get the idea. The time has been foreshortened, which means that the event of Christ in the Spirit has now compressed time in such a way that the future has been brought forward so as to be clearly visible. You see, those who have a definite future and see it clearly live in the present with a radically altered perspective, radically altered values of what counts and what does not, right? We have to rethink our existence when we know how it ends, don't we? You ever said this before? If I only knew then, but I know now. You ever said that before? Well, let me tell you something. You as Christians should. You should. We shouldn't be the ones at the end of the age saying, if only I knew then what I know now. He's revealed those things to us. And yes, we should be living now in light of what we know to be true then. I'll give you an illustration. I love the mountains. I love everything about it. How vast they are, their immensity. I mean, they will move you to awe. The terror of them fascinates me. It really does. And because I love mountains, I love maps. Maps give a more clear view of what's actually there. Without them, one's at great risk of being lost, I'll tell you. And if you ever come to be lost, when you're down in the wilderness... It's really hard to know where you are and virtually impossible to know where you're going. Much anxiety comes at that point with every decision you make because it's seemingly in the dark. Which one? This way or that way? Up or down? Right or left? Huge anxiety. What you got to do to know the urgent decisions that have to be made and determining an appropriate path is to get to higher ground, get to a mountaintop where distances are foreshortened. You see, when you come up out of the valley where you can't see very far and you get up on top, it foreshortens the distance that you're able to see. Well, Christians stand on a mountaintop, as it were. The distances are foreshortened. From this vantage point, You can see the termination of history on earth and its goal. You can see them all. You can discern what really matters because you can see the end and you understand where you are. 
you can make life path decisions accordingly. But if you don't see the end clearly, you'll be lost. You'll be praying, God, this or that, and waiting for a still small voice in your heart to give the answer. And I'll tell you what the whisper actually is. I already told you. Read the scriptures. I told you how to think about it. Why are you asking me which one? Wrong question. Go find out the right question. And in this situation where we don't use the end to determine our path now, every single decision is wrought with great anxiety. The burden of which one and what's God's will. Well, Paul next lists five examples, beginning with the most shocking example, marriage, in which the Christian's distinctive view of this of the end should impinge on everything that they do now in the present. So this is the purpose or the result of the time being shortened. God has compressed the time of salvation so that for now on, believers might have a totally new perspective as to their relationship with this world. Paul's not advocating a stoic aloofness, right? Detachment from it all, like, ah, it doesn't matter, it's all burning anyway. He's not advocating that. Don't hear me saying that. Very common misperception here, too. Nor is he advocating a kind of end-time fanaticism, right, that just escapes from the world. I'll just go be a prepper and live on somewhere myself until God returns because I need to not be a part of this world at all. Not advocating that either. So you can't take an indifferent stance to the world and just dispassionately not care either way. And you can't take an escapism tactic and just avoid the world altogether. Neither one of them is what Paul intends, nor should you do either one of those. What Paul's advocating is a radical new stance toward the world that's predicated upon these end times that have entered in even now with the coming of Jesus. Christ now has marked off our lives in a totally new way that informs everything we do, all of our perspective. So that those who have wives might be as if they did not. Now, Paul wasn't trying to contradict what he said earlier, uh, which, uh, because he just said that that husbands uh, don't need to become celibate, right? Except only to come come apart for a time for the sake of prayer, right? Nor is he condoning husbands to neglect their wives. That's certainly not the case. But Christians must be mindful of this. Marriage is a transient state. You ever seen the couple for whom their marriage was everything to them? One of them dies and the other one falls apart because their life is wrapped up in a state that won't exist in eternity. I've watched Yvonne. I adore you, Yvonne. (laughs) If y'all have watched her, she may have sadness over her husband passing, but it is full of hope because that wasn't her whole life. Her life was wrapped up in the Lord. Death breaks the bond of marriage and never is it made again. It's a thing that exists in this world. 
and it's a state that's transient. Therefore, this way of relating in marriage is going to disappear one day and no longer be. But your relationship to the Lord lasts forever. It's eternal. By the way, so does relating as a brother and sister in Christ. That's an eternal way of relating. And I've argued with some of my people that I've worked with before that uh, it's actually a higher state of relating is as a brother and sister in Christ. And because we live in a time when the ages are overlapped and marriage still exists, it's kind of brothers and sisters with benefits. And I say that both so you'll laugh. Go ahead. Um, But also to point this out, those benefits are also transient and they should not be the focus. And I'll tell you as one who counsels for a living on a regular basis, two things that are transient, sex and money, are the number one things that couples fight about. That's why I say there's a higher place to relate as brothers and sisters in Christ and while marriage might also exist in this life, it's transient, and so is that form of relating. Another commentator, Moffat, says this, The Christian life must never be identified with even the nearest and dearest of worldly experiences, however legitimate and appealing they may be. Marriage and sex, both legitimate, both appealing, and both perishing. The current Christian plea, focus on the family, while not intended that way, runs dangerously close to identifying the Christian life with the family structures of this world. Like that's the be-all, end-all of this world. And all of our lives are dependent upon how that family structure, which, by the way, also won't exist in that form in heaven, exists, right? You feel the weight of that, right, parents? Every decision is so important. And it's important to in measure. The family of God is what's eternal, though. And that transcends blood-relatedness. That transcends a nuclear family and a home structure that we experience now. It's completely different. Do you have a husband or a wife? You won't in the new heavens and the new earth, so it doesn't matter either way whether you marry or not. It's not a final state. Here's one. Do you have children? I hope you don't know her. I know so. All right. Well, you know what? You won't in the eternal state either. So it doesn't really matter whether you do or not. It's not a final place to end up at. (laughs) In fact, Paul argued that the state of undivided allegiance The undivided allegiances that no wife or no kids have actually have some practical advantages in this life, not disadvantages. The number one being undivided allegiance and the ability to focus fully on the Lord, the things of eternity. It's funny because what do you hear sold oftentimes in Christendom, right? The other is the preferable higher road to take. Not at all. Not at all. And I fear it puts great burdens, things like this, on people's shoulders, burdens they can't carry. How about those who mourn or rejoice might be as if they did not? 
He's not calling for an end of mourning or rejoicing. Paul himself says continually throughout his letters that he both mourns and rejoices. So obviously that's not who's calling to. But you know what? Laughter and tears, they're not the final word for the Christian. They're not the final word for the Christian because this current estate that causes both laughter and tears will go away eventually. The final estate is going to be worship and love, the family of God. The tears will be no more. The rejoicing will be continually. But so long as this world and its state is here, and you and your estate, because that's going to perish too, uh, there will be tears. And they'll be appropriate. But you know what? We can't be lost in either. We don't get to be Emmett from the Lego movie, right? Everything is awesome. Yeah. That's a real popular Christian perspective, which makes me want to vomit a little bit. Because everything's not awesome, just to be honest. We live in a fallen world with death and sickness. And the guy that says everything is awesome is apparently living in some other alternate universe. But we live in a place where the times have overlapped. We live in both, as it were. Everything's not awesome. But it's also wrong to take on Eeyore. Oh, you know. Eeyore is kind of like some farmers. I just say some, Bob, because I know you well enough to know you're not Eeyore. You know, you're like, hey, are you glad we got some rain today? Oh, I wish we didn't get quite so much. Oh, okay, you know, or oh, it was at the wrong time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, some, some farmers, it's like it doesn't matter what happened. It wasn't the right timing or the right amount or came down too fast or you name it, you know, there's something that did, wasn't perfect. But you know what? We don't take this perspective either. We don't allow the fallen estate of this world to define our existence because it doesn't. The one that goes to one of these other is either only looking at one reality or the other reality, but he's not facing both honestly simultaneously. A fallen world that's perishing and a salvation, a redemption that's eternal. Those exist simultaneously. And here's the paradoxical tension of this overlapping of ages. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, we as Christians live in this tension, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. See the overlap of the two worlds? As, making many, as poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. There's the overlap of the ages. One's in this life, one's in a life to come. Well, Paul's clear-sighted end-time kingdom vision leads him to neutralize the sadness even found in the Old Testament. And I mention this because I see Christians, again, making a real big deal over this, like somehow we're still in the Old Testament perspective, not able to see the end, right? The Old Testament makes... A lot of sadness about not being married or remaining a virgin or never producing children. This is like one of the saddest things in the Old Testament, and it's crazy. Christians, churches today, continue to go about with the same perspective. And Paul totally neutralizes it. Neither one of them are eternal state. Neither, neither of them should define your life in such a way that it devastates you. Neither one. The problem with pulling our axioms straight out of the Old Testament, and by the way, any of these topics I listed, you go read the books on them, 
guess where they're primarily going to pull out of? Some obscure Old Testament verse and be like, see, that's what God wants. Okay, kind of, maybe. The problem is we don't live in that age any longer. To, to do that and to dismiss this new age and the coming of Christ is to miss the new lens by which we look at all the things in this world. Revelation had not progressed to such a place where they could have the, the, the foresight to see the end for where they were now and to relate to this world in its form in a whole new way. That's the real danger of pulling out those Old Testament verses and wanting to put a Christian stake in the sand where we claim them for ourselves. Very different times. You don't really have that warrant. How about this one? Those who buy might be as if they did not possess. This is going to be a tough one for the most wealthy society that's ever existed in the world, and I'm not going to harp on it. But people are supposed to buy. That's presupposed here. So you're not supposed to stop buying. All right? Um, however, we need to not be consumed by our consuming. It needs to be not what takes over our life, what's our greatest concern. Um, and the problem is because it can distract people in the here and now from what's truly important, and that's devotion to the Lord, not to stuff. One's identity or image, which by the way is what the world tells it should be, cannot be based upon what you buy or don't buy what you wear or don't wear, what you drive or don't drive, where you live or don't live, what school you go to. These aren't the things that are important. And he, and he says that we should buy but not possess. The idea of possess or to hold firmly it is basically trying to forbid the inordinate, inordinate love of things that makes us want to possess them. Here's the question. What are you laboring for? Most people in here work. What are you laboring for? What are your conversations about with budget? Is it the next thing you're going to procure? We're working really hard and we're saving up for so we can have something to give to the one that has need. That conversation doesn't have happen near as much as maybe it ought to. In, not in my life for sure. Uh, in a Christian conversation on budget right what are we saving up for that question almost always is associated with what the new thing we're going to buy so that we can possess and we're going to labor over which one of those should we choose we might even pray lord which one do you want us to have which is crazy don't make that prayer If you're wondering what you labor for, look at your budget. That's a real uncomfortable thing. Old Tom Nelson used to always say this. You want to know where someone's heart is? Look at their wallet. <laughs> Woo! Those are hard terms right there. Because if their wallet's all about them and the things they have, I can tell you where their heart isn't. And for us in our society, that is a tough thing. We are confronted by a barrage of buy nows as if our life depends on it. Actually, there's three parables, parables in Luke, and I'll just refer to them, so maybe you'll check them later, that really warns against this. The rich fool, right? He's the one who thinks he owns all these things and 
comes to find out that uh, the so-called owner is owned by the things he thinks he owns. Or the banquet. Some of these shocked me and scared me a little bit. The banquet in which people are shut out who are distracted by marrying and by buying. They were distracted and they were shut out from the banquet. That's some scary stuff right there. And if you think that one's scary, this last one's the scariest. I was going to go through it, but I knew I wouldn't have time, but I'm going to give it to you in the end because you need to go read it. The sudden coming of the Son of Man in which people are caught off guard because they're distracted by, listen, marriages, buying, selling, eating, drinking, planting, and building. That's why in the end, when Jesus finally came, they were shocked and their final status was uh, insolvency at the end of the age because they were distracted by all the activities of this world. It's kind of alarming, isn't it? And he gives examples that are even more alarming. Noah, at that time, judgment came, and everybody was given to this, and Noah was preserved. Well, what was Noah giving himself to? Things of the Lord, building an ark, doing what God had commanded him to do. And who perished? All those concerned with the things in this life. He gives another one in case you missed it. Lot. Sodom. What were they all giving themselves to? All the things of this world. Don't just get hung up on homosexuality. They were actually engaged in all the normal activities of this life. And it had consumed them. And Lot was sent out. Remember what happened to his wife? Why'd she turn back? You know why she turned back? Because that's where her life was. That's why she turned back. Her life existed there in those things, in those activities. And she perished along with it. Alarming things, which are supposed to wake us up, by the way. So that's Luke 17, 26 through 37. I'm just losing everything up here. Go read those verses. They are alarming, and, and you realize that's their real fault. They gave themselves completely to the activities of this life. And they were distracted from soul devotion to the Lord and following His commands and obeying Him. How about this final one? Those who use the world might be as, as though they didn't have full use of it or take full advantage of it. Paul actually serves as a great example of this, and I think he'll illustrate it the best. He refuses to make full use of his position as an apostle. You remember this? You know why? Because he, he refuses to take financial support. Because if he took financial support, they might have cause to question his message. Because in those days, people would go around giving a message in order to get paid, right? And so in Corinth, that was a risk. So he refused the right that he had to, to financial remuneration for being an apostle. See, he forewent that. He could have made full use of it. They owed it, but he refused to. Instead, he focused on pleasing God and fulfilling his calling. That was the thing that had first priority for Paul. And that gave him the, listen to the word I use, freedom to surrender the material benefits and to reap spiritual ones instead. Put that in any category in your life. You know why Paul can do this? Because he knows that the Christian's well-being is not hinging upon taking advantage of the world's opportunities and becoming successful. 
according to the world standards. Did y'all hear that? Did you guys hear that? Just one more time. A Christian's well-being is not dependent upon cleverly taking advantage of the world's opportunities and becoming successful according to the world's standards. So guess what? This job or that job? Okay, whatever. This car or that car? This school or that school? Right? Really not that important. What is important is living completely devoted to the Lord. That's what's important. It's one thing to be engaged in something. It's another to be enmeshed in it. So you can continue to buy and sell in this world, and you should. However, you need to understand the things of this world, they're short-lived. They're not eternal. And in terms of significance and importance for our lives, fairly minimal. The world and all the things of this world, all that list I gave, even family, should never be the means by which persons attempt to create and define their lives. So, well, if it's not indifference and it's not escape, what in the world do those as-nots mean, <laughs> right? Well, the as-nots were intended to pose a question, and I hope you hear the question. I'm going to restate the question to you, and I want you to really consider this question. What is it that molds your life? Not what you say does, what really does. What is the source of your life? It's easy to say, Jesus. How do you go about your life that reveals what you think that source really is? Do you labor endlessly to hustle and make all the money you can, revealing that you think the source of life is financial? You see what I'm saying? That's how you play that out. What's the ground of your hope? A good, a good way to ask what the ground of your hope is, ready? When you're with your parents, parents, when you're with your children, when you're with your spouse, what is it that, that causes a heated discussion? Think about it real quick. Think about that as something eternal or something of this world that's perishing. Is college a hot topic? A little bit? What if you said you're not going? Maybe Could be. Could be. You might say no. Your parent might go, yeah, I'd be a little more tense about it. Fill in the blank. What's the topic that dominates conversation and becomes heated in your home? That'll reveal a whole lot of things about your disposition. Or do y'all have heated conversations about full devotion to the Lord? It's funny. No one ever comes into my office for counseling in a heated conversation as a couple about devotion to the Lord. Never happened, not once. Maybe it will. I'm young-ish. Never heard of such a thing either, but maybe it will one day. <laughs> you know, the New Testament writers continually warn about the world's power to entangle and disarm and make us less ready for an imminent end that's coming. So, 
here we are in the in-between. We've got to live in this earthbound world who's got many lords and many gods. And yet we live as one who's bound to eternity, who doesn't belong here, who has one Lord and one God in our life. The as not at the end of the day is another way of saying this. Do not be conformed to this world. And this brings me to the final one, the reason. For this world in its present form is passing away. So when it says form, it's talk, it, that's the Greek word schema. Okay? It's where we get the, ter- the word schematic. All right? This world in its outward array, in its arrangement, or its fashion is all perishing. The way that this world functions, its relationships, its institutions, all of them are perishing. None of them are eternal. None of them are going to be around anymore. The metaphor, he's actually, the metaphor of this term schema actually comes from uh, shifting scenes in a theater or a mask or costume that an actor would wear. So remove the set, take off the mask, and they're empty. The substance of what they once were when it was in place, they no longer are once you remove them. It's just some actor. It's not the character. It's just a set. It wasn't really an office or whatever the set portrayed. And the fabric of life is just that. It's fabric. It's fabric that's frayed and flimsy and none of it's eternal. Now, let me just say this. You shouldn't feel deep burden at this point so much as deep release. Okay? So if you're going one direction, stop. This isn't another heavy burden to throw on the top of all the others. This is permission to shake all those burdens off of you and enter in to the freedom that Christ has offered us. Todd Naff gave me the best illustration and because of our time, that's probably where we're going to end, close to that. He said this, agonizing, pouring over the passing things of this world would be like this. Agonizing over every single little element while constructing a building that is simultaneously being wired with explosives to be imploded before it's even finished. What futility, right? Did you catch all that? Let me say it one more time. We got to get the right architect and the right builders, and every sub has to be just right, the right materials. Oh, we got to oversee this project just perfectly. Meanwhile, part of the plan is that explosives are being tied to the foundations because it's going to be imploded before it's ever built. For us to agonize and pour over painstakingly the elements of this world that are set for destruction is utter futility. Instead, we're to focus on the Lord and the things of the Lord, the things that are lasting, the things that are, inter- that are eternal. So take a breath. Let it be a relief. Because whatever building you're building, it ain't ever going to be perfect and it ain't going to still be here when the Lord returns. Let go of it. And chances are those are the things that are hindering you the most from full devotion to the Lord, from loving others as you're really called to, the preoccupation of all the things 
of the schematics, the schema of this world that demands and demands and enslaves you every single day. In sum, concise statement, an end time change has already been set in motion such that the schema, the form of this world is already passing away. It's not waiting to be passing away. That, that it's passing away is in the present tense. Since Jesus came, it already began to pass away. It is passing away even now. The dynamite is being tied to the foundations. Already tied... The wick is burning. (laughs) The end time wheels are already in motion. And they're already affecting normal daily life for us Christians who are new creation in Christ. The form of things, life, death, boy, we really, that's a big burden too, right? That's perishing also. (laughs) Marriage. All these earthly givings are passing away. None of them are eternal. These are part of the task and the ways of relating of an old world. Only worshiping and relating seem to be the only things that remain in eternity. When faith becomes sight and hope is finally realized and love endures so that we finally love God and neighbor as we ought. Therefore, these are the things to concern yourself with. These are the things to give yourself wholly to. And guess what? If you do, You'll be a great husband or wife, or you'll be someone single who is undividedly devoted to the Lord. Either way, it'll have eternal, reap eternal rewards. Now, I grant, it's a radical perspective, isn't it? Really, pretty radical perspective, and not one that most modern Christians embrace, right? It's just a new how-to book, right? How to do your family perfect, God's way. Okay. And you got to, because that's what Christians do, and they master it. Just like everything else in their life. Diet, exercise, you name it. Pick up the topic, we'll write a book, and this is how you got to do it, Christian. How do you keep all that together? Woo, good luck with that one. The job of the church isn't to baptize the status quo of normal life. It's all perishing. Our job is to have an extraordinary perspective on the ordinary, a kingdom perspective. It's to see the end and live as if even now. Do you know why Rome murdered so many Christians? I'll tell you why. It has to do with this. They saw Christians as the worst citizens ever. You know why? Because Christians' lives were not defined by the, by the condition of themselves or their estate within the empire. Because you know what Rome's leverage was? I need you to care about everything that we're doing because then I have leverage, right? I need you to care about your social standing. Our whole system is predicated upon you caring and being willing to strive and sacrifice everything to progress in your social standing. And guess what? Christians didn't. They cared. They were engaged, but there was no point of leverage, not even death. Rome thought, well, we'll get them. We'll kill some. Then they'll get in line, and guess what? You know what the Christians thought about at that time? That person went to be martyred, and he wasn't chosen by God to be martyred because they didn't come find him out. He just went willingly to die. Later, the Christians repented. It was like, 
No, that's martyrdom too. And it was a witness. You know what it was a witness of? Not even death has hold over us. Our hope is somewhere else altogether. What I possess, who I marry, what children I have. We can't allow these things to have sway in our hearts to define us one way or the other. And when we come up to these questions, we have to take the viewpoint that Christ has given us now that he has come and revealed the end. And we've got to make them in light of that end. And they redefine everything. I'll leave you with Paul's exhortation from Romans. It gives a very clear application of this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Lay your life down in worship. Be concerned about worship. Give yourself wholly to worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the schema, to the schematic, to the form of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a kingdom perspective. A renewing of your mind in light of Christ, the Spirit, and the end that is certain for you. So that you may prove what the will of God is. And it ain't whether or not you have a SUV or a truck. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. That which is eternal. You might know this song. O soul, you are weary and troubled. No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You're dismissed.